you can hear the occasional thing that sounds like I'm farting. It's my <laughs> ear machine deciding to pull. Yeah, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we're joined by a titan of the motorsport world, none other than Formula One legend David Coulthard. DC dialed in from his home in Monaco to have a little chinwag about his career and his thoughts on the motorsport world today, plus his favourite things to watch on TV. Thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen. If you like it, please do leave us a review. It really helps us get bigger and enjoy. Here we are, episode 25 of the Motormouth podcast. It's a big day, folks, and we're inexcusably excited. We're nothing if not persistent, and we've finally got our man. However, before we introduce him, I have to head all the way over to the English county, which you might be surprised to hear has more islands than any other and is home to the largest turf maze in the world. Yes, it's Essex, and importantly, it's it's also home to my much taller co-host, the indispensable walking motorsport encyclopedia, everyone's best friend, Harry Benjamin. How are you? Wow. I mean, 23 years I've lived in Essex and I haven't known any of those uh, facts at all. You're so welcome. You for educating me there. <laughs> yeah, I'm all good. Still uh, still locked down here uh, and still trying to debate how to cut my own hair. I really don't want to brace the subject, but it's forever getting longer and thicker and I'm just a bit worried about taking the razor blade to it. The pro. Um, we cross that bridge when we get there. How about you? Yeah, not too bad. Um, no change since we last spoke. Actually, we last <laughs> spoke about an hour ago, um, even though these yeah. episodes are going to end up being about um, a week apart. But um, no, it continues. The homeschooling continues. Hopefully by the time this is released in a couple of weeks' time, we're all back to uh, some sort of normality. But we shall see. As Something tells me we probably won't. Um, right. Shall I introduce today's guest? Absolutely. Right. So, ladies and gents, we are joined by Motorsport Royal. It's my huge pleasure to welcome a man we first flirted with all the way back in 2019 during the W Series race at Brands Hatch, where he was in an official capacity. David Coulthard, often known as DC, is a former Formula One racing driver turned TV broadcaster and businessman. As a youngster, he dominated British Formula Ford categories and was the first ever winner of the prestigious McLaren Autosport BRDC Award. He's driven for the Williams F1 team, McLaren and Red Bull and collected 62 F1 podiums on his way to a record-breaking 535 championship points while racing against the likes of Michael Schumacher and Mika Hakkinen. David Coulthard, it's our honour to have you on the show. Welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast. Wow, this is brilliant. <laughs> uh, you're, you're welcome. Absolutely. We Everyone gets a round of applause. When I enter the bedroom, my wife is always trying to be trained, but she's Belgian, and so I convinced her early doors that it was uh, you know, the, the respectful way to welcome a British man into the boudoir. Yeah, round of applause. Standard oh, behaviour. Oh, DC, it's an absolute pleasure to, to speak to you, um, uh, despite you know all of us uh, being in our various lockdowns. But where to start, really? You, you, you've had motorsport in the family. Was there anything else planned from you right from the start? What was that first thing that got you into, into racing and motorsport and, and made you become so synonymous with, with Formula One? Well, my father had raced carts and uh, had, had at some point won the Scottish Karting Championship he tells me but then he also told me he fought during the war um, so between actual pictures of him in a car uh, and, and made up stories I have to sort of you know read between the lines but he certainly had a passion for racing and uh, his father sadly passed away when he was 14 so he wasn't able to continue that passion 
but always had uh, an enjoyment to go to Grand Prix, go to Le Mans, tells wonderful stories of and good father-son advice of back in the day pre-internet. He would say, "Son, I would always buy a newspaper." The the Monday after the race, so I could re- could remember to tell your mother who had actually won the race because, of course, he was at the mall partying for 24 hours. He wasn't actually <laughs> like any. You know, no one actually goes there to watch 24 hours of cars going around in circles. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I went to Silverstone, Donington, Brands Hatch, Cadwell Park, Bolton Park, all these sort of racetracks uh, as a kid. You know, probably seven, eight, nine years old through long circuit karting, nothing to do with car racing, and uh, then drifted into karting at the age of 11, and sort of my career was mapped out from there, not because my father was called Ben Eccleston and it was a shoe in that I would be a Grand Prix driver, but because he had a vision and a belief that if you, you know, worked hard and had success, then the logical thing at 17 was to move into cars, and then if you continue to have success, logically you would end up in Formula One. So his belief and sort of not desire because I always had the motivation but I actually left school um, at 17 to go to the local tech college to do a business computing course because I thought I'd work in the family transport business which has been going since 1916 I didn't actually truly truly believe that I would become a Grand Prix driver Um, but hey that's what happened. So, damn, I missed out on working in the transport office. Oh, yeah, what could oh. have been? Another life. Devastating. <laughs> <laughs> Was the path to Formula One straightforward for you? I mean, for some drivers, it's a very difficult challenge. Um, were there a series of logical steps, like you say, that, that resulted in you reaching Formula One? Or were there hiccups, concerns and challenges along the way? There were so many twists and turns and so many speed bumps and so many moments where it, it could have stopped before it even properly started, uh, you know, right through teenage years, trying to work out. But, of course, when you when you start racing at 11 years old, or as these guys do now at 8 years old, if that's all you've ever done, you tend to, as a child, take it for granted. So there's key moments where you are going from boy to man and and going through that transitional phase, but you have to work out where your commitments lie. So there was many a time where my father would be, look, I'll support you if you give 100%, but if you're given 99, line up in a long queue of people that are prepared to do the same. And they had a family business, they were away working all week to then pick me up from school at four o'clock on a Friday and drive from the southwest of Scotland to London to race, arriving in the small hours of Saturday, then leave... Sunday evening to get home in the small hours of Monday. I'd go direct from the motorhome to school and they'd go direct to work. You know, it was an incredible commitment from the family to support me. So you need to know that you are prepared to give everything. And I think actually, if you look, obviously there's a great deal of British success in motorsport uh, as drivers, but uh, given the population size of Scotland, we've had a reasonable success at high level from not a big population. Because I think actually to, to to get to the next level, you've got to commit hours and hours of your life just to get there. Mm-hmm. But if you live right in the hub of whatever it is in the UK, in England, where you're a couple of hours from every major track, you can probably start thinking about it a bit later in the week, where our whole week was dominated by emptying and cleaning and preparing and repacking and getting ready for the next weekend. So by the time I moved to cars at 17, we had a really tight little team that we ran with David Leslie from from their Fiat car dealership in Carlisle. 
And I did the cleaning. They did all the technical stuff. I was the driver, the cook, and the cleaner. And we we went and won both the championships. And that put me in front of the motorsport community, won me the Young Driver of the Year Award, and got me a call from Jackie Stewart when he was starting Paul Stewart Racing. There were still a lot of twists and turns. There was a lot of you know, points where it could have gone wrong, including 94. I'd run out of finance, run out of any family support financially, and w- scraped together uh, an opportunity to go and race at Silverstone for, uh, for Vortex, which Ronnie Meadows was the manager of at that time. He's now the team manager or sporting director at uh, Mercedes Grand Prix. And we managed to go racing that weekend and, and finish in the top three, which was a big result for them. And, and you know, for me, it was a sort of realisation of what you could achieve yeah. when your back's against the wall. Absolutely. Mm. And that, that season, in 1994, obviously a big year for you. When that call came in, obviously difficult times, you're succeeding the most famous Formula One driver of all time jumping into a Williams when that call comes through how do you feel is there a sense of it bittersweet the benefit of youth is you don't know what you don't know so at 23 24 when you are you know still living in rented accommodation uh, and you've been sharing houses with other mechanics from the race team you you've got debt you know, I, I arrived in Formula One with, you know, over £320,000 worth of debt that had been funding my, my career. So you, you're looking at life in a different way than I would look at life today. And, you know, then it was, okay, I've been given the call. I didn't go seeking out that opportunity. You know, Williams, I tested for for three years. And I never spoke to, to Frank about replacing, um, you know, Ayrton. Ayrton was irreplaceable as a driver, but driving that seat because I felt there'd be every man and the dog that had got a racing license would be doing so. And the team knew everything they could about me. And if that wasn't enough, then I didn't think lobbying um, that scenario was the right thing to do. So I got the opportunity and I couldn't replace Ayrton, but I could give 100%. And that's what I did. And that led to, you know, a full time contract for the following year. Mm. And then, you know, the rest of my, my career. So ever grateful, ever thankful to Williams for their trust. But I know subsequently that speaking to Julian Jacobi, who was my initial manager when I was at IMG back in the, um, the early 90s, and he looked after Ayrton, that Ayrton had enjoyed working with me and had spoken highly of my feedback to Frank. And I told him that, you know, he believed that I deserved a chance in Formula One. So there's no question that even from, you know, beyond the grave, uh, Ayrton's words had resonated with Frank and given my opportunity. So, wow. uh, you know, tragic, tragic weekend. And, uh, you know, you'd never hope that your life opportunity in, in your chosen career comes through through that scenario. But uh, you can only react to what comes to you. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Then, uh, I mean, it's a huge juxtaposition. I mean, you've got, on one hand, you've got over 300 grand's worth of debt. Then on the other hand, you've got a race seat. On the other hand, you've got the greatest driver that's potentially ever lived, you know, passing away. What a huge, looking back now, it must boggle your mind to think of that that moment in time, 94, 95, when things could have gone either way. I, it could have. I, I could have be no longer well I'm no longer a racing driver but I could have been no longer a racing driver yeah, very early yeah. there's just no guarantee just because you have desire there's so many people out there with desire that have got talent and have got commitment but don't get the opportunity and there's those that have got desire 
talent, arguably not as much commitment, and do get the opportunity. But in the fullness of time, I think things play out the way they're meant to play out. And um, that's the card I was dealt. Yeah. I'm thankful for the journey. So that first full year, though, in, in 95, are there any, you know, that is your first full year, there surely must be some major things that stand out for you. Have you got any highlights that you can still sort of recall and then really stand in your memory? All them years ago. <laughs> when we talk about debt arriving, you know, I actually had, I owed £320,000. And uh, the, what I was paid in 95 didn't come anywhere near uh, making a dent in that. And that's all documented in my book, It Is What It Is which was the book that came out before my fault, my next book, The Winning Formula. Um, so excellent plugs, excellent plugs. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, uh, but when I signed the 95 contract, um, I, I specifically requested that Frank pay me an advance payment of £320,000, which is a vast amount of money. And it was, you know, a significant amount of, you know, more than half my salary for that first year in, in Formula One because I wanted to, to pay off my debt. I, I wanted to go into the 95 season not owing people money. Uh, and I, I wanted, you know, I, if I'm going to compete with the other drivers on an equal foot, footing, then you've got to have clarity of mind and, yeah. and a clear mind and what have you. So that stands out in my mind as a, as a great uh, recognition from Frank that he was prepared to do that. And uh, I... I Equally, just remember how good that 95 car was. I was a little bit finding my way still at the beginning of the year. I then, uh, I was struggling on and off with uh, tonsillitis, which the lowest point was at the French Grand Prix. And there's a picture that I don't have, but I've, I've seen of me on the podium, uh, the French Grand Prix 95. And I, I looked like Casper the Ghost. I was just <laughs> completely washed out because of this tonsillitis. And I then went and had my tonsils removed mid-season. And, uh, and, and then in that, from that point on, my year really picked up. And I was never a great qualifier, as to be said, uh, but I had, I think, five pole positions in a row in that car. You know, I made a few mistakes and didn't win some Grand Prix that, were, that, that should have been on the CV, but uh, eventually won my 21st Grand Prix, which was the Portuguese Grand Prix in September of that year, which in my first podium had been 94 uh, Portuguese Grand Prix. So... Estero was a track that I tested at a lot. It was a really tricky track physically. Any driver who's been around there will remember the great challenge of, you know, the last corner and the first two corners were huge, fast right-handers. So give your neck a pummeling. But um, yeah, it just I was actually talking to Adrian New about this last week about how that's still my favourite car because it was early enough in my career that politics hadn't started to play a part, and I was just driving on instinct and just loving the opportunity and the freedom to, to do so and it I think reflected in, uh, in in what I was able to get out of that car and then you get into the guts of your career and it gets more complicated more political mm, yeah, and sure. learn how to walk that minefield but that's all the journey of life does it feel like yesterday that that season I wouldn't say yesterday um, a few weeks ago yeah I, I can remember some key moments I don't remember everything. I've, I haven't been blessed with that memory. And I've got friends, and I'm sure either you have the memories or you've got friends as well who are just brilliant at remembering yeah, detail. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember random things, you know, random things about setups. Or, you know, I remember gearing, gear ratios from karting on certain racetracks. So 
it's things, I think maybe when I had less on my mind, I was more receptive to holding information. And as I've become naturally busier and, and do more things, and as your Grand Prix car, uh, career progresses, you, you learn time management as well. And I went from being, as I said, the, the cook, the cleaner, and the driver to then just being the driver. You know, I would still in Formula 3 and Formula 3000 go in the factory and help the boys clean the bodywork and things because my theory was if I was doing tasks that didn't require high levels of skill, just elbow grease, it would then allow them the time to spend more time setting the car up and, you know, working mm. as a team. Yeah. And then that's in Formula 1, you, you don't get involved in things like that. But, of course, if I put the car on the gravel and testing, I would get the, the dusters out and help the boys because yeah. I'd made the car dirty. I felt it was the least I could do to, to help them clean it because, yeah, as I say, cleaning doesn't take a degree. It just takes desire and effort. I wonder if uh, I wonder if Lance Stroll does that. Hmm. <laughs> no, no uh, chance. You know, I've been as well as well. My wife's been doing more of the homeschooling with our eleven-year-old, but I've been hoovering and I've been cleaning windows and I've been doing tasks which a lot of people would look down on uh, and go, "Well, that's not. I wouldn't do that. That's not my job." But I'm a, I've always been, you know, I've always been brought up to, you know, be tidy, be organised, and, and and take care of your environment and it doesn't matter whether it's something expensive or something inexpensive keeping something clean mm-hmm. takes the same amount of effort yeah the, the world of formula one is you know if you're if you're living it, it you're living in a, in a bubble which has sort of been well documented how have you always been able to sort of keep your head on you or are there times where you've sort of suscepted and fallen into that formula one glitz and glamour because it must be so difficult not to but at the same time you, you what stands you out dc is you do have that sort of straight talking you know where you're at and you know you know where you, you can keep your head on the ground your feet on the ground even <laughs> yeah occasionally i've been head on the ground yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and cuddling the ground doesn't it you can't fall yeah. you fall you're of course, you go through phases. As I mentioned, in karting, as a teenager, you, you start to you take for granted that what is happening and you need to be reminded. And as you get older, and you, you're, you're suddenly being paid and you, you, you're, you're starting. Things change. Not only you change. People always say, don't change. Uh, but it's not just that we have to evolve through life. We should change. It doesn't mean we should become not nice people. Yeah. But change is part of growth and it's part of learning and, and applying those learnings to how, you know, hopefully making better decisions. But an example would be when I was test driver at Williams, the team would understandably tell me, okay, be here, do that. Um, where are you? Get here now. You know, just basic normal instructions of an employee. When I became a Grand Prix driver in Barcelona, you know, a few weeks after the Emily weekend, Suddenly the team were going, would you mind? Could you possibly? Mm. Is it okay? And I remember, because I, I was 23, 24 years old. I was old enough. I, you know, I was young, but I was a young man. And I'm thinking, people have changed around me because their perception, you're no longer test driver, you're now a Grand Prix driver. So, of course, if somebody's asking you rather than telling you, you've got a choice, haven't you? So I'd be like, well, actually, if you're asking me, I really prefer not to do that. <laughs> yes. So what I then took into my the rest of my career, I needed to trust my team in the same way they needed to trust me. And if it was the press, press officer, I would say, don't ask me to do something. Tell me to do it. And, if, and, and I'll trust that you're telling me to do it because it's important for you to perform your role. It's therefore important for the team. 
and therefore it's important for me, and therefore it's for the you know the greater good. Mm. But if you tell me to do something which turns out to be actually badly thought through, organised, and inefficient, then I'm going to lose trust in you. So I think what it does is empower people to do their jobs, and yeah. they're employed to understand how to get the best. Mm out of the media activation, I was employed to drive the car, but part of that role is, of course, being involved in media and marketing and what have you. Mm. So, you know, it's like driver's contracts. In the early days, they had a certain amount of days that the team would have of your time. At the latter part of my career, I said, don't worry about putting days in the contract. If you tell me it's important, I'll be there. If it isn't important, don't disturb me because I'm not going to disturb you. Assume I'm training or assume I'm doing something to, to further make myself better next time I get in the car. And again, I say, I think it just really empowers a team as a whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating actually hearing this story because we had Jack Aitken um, on the uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago and he's at the, the other end of this journey. He's at Williams Test Driver now. And uh, it's it's worth, for those listening, it's worth listening back to that Jack Aitken one and hearing this one now and hearing the two ends of the spectrum. It's actually a, a fascinating um, position to hear from, from both sides um, mm. with him just sort of getting going on his career, although he's hugely experienced already and has been racing for years, but he's just jumped into that sort of first uh, test, well, his second, but uh, test driver role at Williams. It's, it's fascinating to, to hear the two stories side by side. Um, so 97, let's fast forward a little bit. You've, you've uh, moved on from Williams. You've gone to McLaren. How did that all come about? Those must have been some exciting years. Well, how it came about was not just signing a contract. It was a slightly more complex than that, in that for uh, at the end of 94, uh, we had, a, we, my management company, IMG, had negotiated a two-year extension to my, uh, my Williams contract, which would have saw me race there 95-96. And at, in the meantime, we had also spoken to McLaren, and I had a dinner with Ron Dennis, and we'd spoken about they'd like me to join McLaren. So decision was made, two years we go to Williams, turn up to sign the contract in December 94, and go in the office, and Frank said, as his lawyer, Peter Goodman, was laying out paperwork, he said he changed his mind. He'd been having difficulty negotiating with Damon, and he was generally pissed off with drivers and didn't want to sign a two-year contract now. He wanted to sign a one-year contract. So long story short, um, Tim Wright, my manager at the time, and I went into his secretary's office at the old Didcot factory, phoned Ron Dennis and said, we are available for 96 to which he said, okay, come to the factory and we'll, we'll do heads of terms. Went back into Frank's office, signed an, a contract that basically scribbled out all the two-year term, signed a contract for 95, drove down to Woking and agreed terms from 96, 97 from McLaren, signed that contract and then drove up to Scotland. And I, again, I've, I've told this story before and it's certainly in the book, but arrived home to my parents and said, oh, you know, it's good news, bad news. Good news is I'm a Grand Prix driver for the next two years. The bad news is it'll be, or not bad news, but the, the twist in that is it'll be with two, ne- two next, you know, separate teams. So my parents, you know, are passionate about my career, but they're not into the details. So they, they kind of probably look slightly bemused and then asked me whether I wanted, you know, gravy on my roast beef and <laughs> so it, it's you know it's funny how life can can change very quickly by people's and then it turns out Williams wanted me for 96 mm. and, and then tried to enforce a testing contract that I had which then meant I had to go to the contract recognition board during 95 
whilst driving for Williams to sit on the uh, the side of the McLaren lawyer and Martin Whitmarsh side of the table with Frank and the Williams lawyers on the other side to then have a, a lawyer decide that actually McLaren did have the first contract for 96-97. Then I went back to racing the rest of the season for Williams. Just bizarre, you know, <laughs> just really weird. Yeah. And to Frank then saying, oh, I'm, I, I won't hold this against you, David. You know, this is the normal part of business. And yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed being cross-examined by the QC. It's just life <laughs> Weird. You have to learn on the job when you're a Grand Prix driver. God, yeah. that, is, that, that, that is so awkward, though. And how that obviously doesn't that must have some sort of effect on on on, on mental state of everybody, or or is that just how the game is played and everyone accepts that and you just yeah. go racing? Because it's not really something you. Well, I suppose you don't hear of it. Maybe you know. Is that something that could happen feasibly in current Formula One? Is there a driver that has a you know? a contract for, you know, Alfa Romeo, but also a two-year contract for uh, Haas in the next two years. If I develop this um, belief that if you can imagine it, it's possible. And during my career, if someone had come up to me and said that Bernie had signed to race for Ferrari at 75 years old, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone, no way. I would have gone, okay, it's possible. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Highly unlikely, but it, you've just got to keep an open mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, it's regular for drivers to have options with other teams that give the other team the first right of refusal. So for argument's sake, Lewis Hamilton could have signed a contract with Ferrari or an option with Ferrari that if he leaves Mercedes, he has to give Ferrari the first right of refusal on his services. Right. And Ferrari will have paid a non-returnable fee for that right. Right. So, okay. you know, it, it, Ferrari are gambling on the fact that if he does leave Mercedes, he either has to leave Formula One completely or he comes to Ferrari. It's entirely possible. Wow, wouldn't that be a story? You no took... McLaren's first win in three years um, at the Australian GP, that must have been a, uh, a hugely satisfying and, and quite emotional moment. Yeah, of course. It was fantastic because 96 was re-adapting to you know, a new team and yeah, relatively lack of competitiveness. You know, I'd come from leading the last Grand Prix of 95 in Adelaide when, when I crashed coming into the pit lane and sitting 13th on the grid for the first race of 96. You know, the penny dropped of just how lucky I was for the performance of the 95 car. So it was 96, I had some flashes of, you know, leading Grand Prix and, and you know, doing some good things, but adapting to being teammates with Mika and the special relationship Ron had with him. And, you know, that's when things started to become more political. It was a lot more kind of innocent when I was at Williams. And then winning, of course, was hugely important to McLaren and, and to, to, to myself. And then I remember that evening uh, being at a dinner with Norbert Haug, uh, actually George Harrison, uh, formerly of the Beatles. And he played a, a song, uh, a demo that he'd recorded, which it was titled Bernie Says. And basically the, the song was basically, I, I, can't, I can't remember all of the, the, the words at all, or even the melody, but essentially it was Bernie says, and then it would be whatever the line was. Bernie says, you know, turn up in Australia. Bernie says Schumacher's going to win. 
Bernie says, Ron Dennis, you're getting fined for being called Ron. I don't know, something silly like that. <laughs> the, 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 sort of, the hook in every part of the song was Bernie says, as if you know he's the puppet master. So somewhere, um, somewhere there will be, within the Harrison family, there'll be that recording, which would be fun if it ever got released. <laughs> and Bernie said, win the Australian Grand Prix, and you did. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then fast forwarding a little bit, I know we're skipping over things here, but we've got lots to cram in. Um, 2001, let's go Let's go there. Um, runner up in the F1 World Championship to uh, obviously Michael Schumacher. Um, so, so near and yet so far. No regrets. I tried my best. Uh, sadly, that wasn't good enough. But hey, um, I entered the world of competition, curious to compete against people from all over the globe and to find out how good I was. And if the history books says uh, uh, not number one, number two, then if it's going to be during Michael's reign, then I can I can live with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of course, it would be nice. To, to be able to walk around with his chest out and say you're a world champion. But the reality is, and maybe this, these are the words of a loser uh, and a champion would say differently, but it doesn't change how I feel day to day. I don't think it changes how my wife or son look at me or my family look at me or my friends. So just because you enter the competitive world doesn't mean that you know everybody goes in there with a desire of success but not everyone's able to get it I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative of the chance the journey the the memories and I sleep well at night mm. what, well, what a story as well your career has uh, conjured up 2005 again fast forwarding a little bit you decide to join a new team called Red Bull what happened there? What what took you to Red Bull and, and the sort of very early beginnings of, of what was to be? Well, at the end of 2004, I'd already knew that I would leave McLaren. Uh, it's the French Grand Prix, I think, used to be in June in Magnicourt. So at the French Grand Prix in 2003, I sat down with Ron and Martin Whitmarsh and they told me they'd signed Montoya for 2005. So I, they gave me plenty of warning, which it, I think is a reflection of the relationship we had. You know, we've been together more than seven and a bit seasons already. And we had a good working relationship. And, you know, they knew I, okay, I couldn't quite deliver the outright pace of Mika, but I could, uh, you know, I did my job. You know, I, I, I mm. did all the tests and did all the other bits and pieces. So the, I cannot complain at all by the notice they gave me. And, of course, I was out in the marketplace trying to look at what the opportunities lay. And the reality is um, a lot of the, the seats were either already signed or not that desirable. And Jaguar was one of the teams that were available. And I just didn't feel it. I just didn't really truly in my heart believe that the structure and and, and, and sort of reporting the management uh, structure with Ford was ever going to make them more than where they were and you know flashes of good results but you know if you really truly have designs on being a winning team and bear in mind I'd, I'd spent my career in winning teams so I had some insight you know these the name above the door doesn't give you success it's the people within and if you look through the history of any company that's sustained over a long time it's you've got to reinvent within the company you know it's not about polishing the Ferrari sign or polishing the Apple sign, you've got to innovate, you've got to bring in fresh people and you've got to find people that want to work together and have got that hunger and desire and everything. So, you know, armed with that information, 
I had pretty much decided Martin Brundle had assumed the role as my uh, contractual manager by that point and we decided that Jagger really wasn't for, for me but Red Bull came along, acquired the team, uh, Christian came on board and I'd, I'd known Christian from karting and obviously watching what he was doing with uh, Arden and, and his former 3000 team. We shared sponsors early on. We'd both been sponsored by Autoglass when I was in, in Formula 3 and, and he was in uh, Formula Renault, I think it was. So, you know, we'd had that link at that time to the Leighton House team, um, which were sponsored by Autoglass as well. And Adrian Newey was the designer at that time and then Adrian went to Williams. And so there's many things that had connected us. And I went to test the Jaguar painted as a Red Bull at the end of the 2004 season. I was still on a contract in McLaren, but uh, they allowed me to go there and play in overalls to test the car. And uh, Mark Gillen, who was the senior engineer at Jaguar at that time, on on the morning of the first test, I remember he, he was shouting at me before I'd even driven one lap in the car. Get in the car, get in the car. And I was like, mm, yeah, okay, I'm not really sure I like being shouted at when I haven't actually one got a contract with a team and two I haven't done anything wrong it was just I think the emotion of you know where Jaguar pulling out were people going to lose their jobs mm-hmm. Red Bull had the team. I think he he was assuming a, a position that wasn't actually his role his role was to be the senior engineer or whatever the technical role was his role was not to carry the weight of everybody's desires <laughs> on his shoulders and then take it out on a non-contracted driver anyway long story short like all of these uh, stories I could tell you the, I did the installation lap got out of the car phoned Martin Brundle and said get me out of here I'm not testing this car tomorrow so I hadn't even turned one proper lap in the car and I'd already decided I didn't like the attitude of the team. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Christian came, Dietrich came, I had conversations with them. I did the test. The test day went well. Didn't do the second day. Uh, left. And agreed uh, a, 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 a contract to go forward uh, with Dietrich that um, Martin dealt with, with Helmut and Christian based on a belief that they understood what the commitment was going to be. And it was basically talking with Dietrich, talking with Christian, you know, getting to know Helmut, that gave me the belief that this had the chance, this had the potential, but it was going to take some restructuring, which obviously I spoke to them about. It was going to take some personnel changes. And a number of the people that were part of that Jaguar program, you know, clearly were no longer part of it when it became fully-fledged Red Bull the following year. But it, it, it was the right opportunity at the right time in my career in terms of where I was with experience. And I was fully committed to it. And I, I went beyond driving. And I would turn up in team meetings on the Monday after Grand Prix. I was going to Austria regularly, you know, weekly with Christian. And we set about putting in place everything we felt that would, would take the team forward. And then, you know, all credit to, to Christian and, and the, the senior management team there. What they've done is, I think, uh, a perfect example of what can be achieved when you have motivation and desire and a, a structure of the right type of investment and the right energy being deployed in the right areas. And they have continually developed, uh, you know, great cars and, it was, it was fantastic to get Adrian on board and, and work with him again towards the end of my career. And they've, they've uh, you know, they are the same factory that was Stuart Grand Prix. Some of the same people that were Paul Stuart Racing 
you know, Simon Adams is one of the first employees. He's still there. I used to share a house with him in Milton Keynes, wow. uh, you know, Tony Burrows and David Boys and a whole bunch of guys that were there back in 1990 when I was at Paul Stewart Racing, as it went from Paul Stewart Racing to Stewart Grand Prix to Jaguar Racing to Red Bull Racing. So it was a perfect sort of beginning, middle and end to my racing career. Yeah, It's an amazing story, isn't it? It's, it's, um, it's incredible what that team have done. Were, were there, with the personnel that they had at that time, did you see hints that you thought, yeah, I mean, obviously you signed for them, but did, did you see hints of what they would become and how good they would get? I'm not going to say that I had the absolute crystal ball of where they would go or, or, or how they've ended up, you know, four back-to-back world championships. But I've, yeah, absolutely, I had belief. My whole career was full of commitment and belief and trust and and, and, and love of being in a team environment. And that's why today, I, you, you know, in the businesses I'm involved in today, I, it, of course, it's not the same blood, sweat and tears because I can't physically get behind the wheel and be exhausted mentally and physically physically at the end of the day in the same way I could as a driver. But I still have the same hunger and passion to work with people. And I have no desire and no interest in working with people that are just meandering. Nothing against those people. And there's a lot of things I'm not good at. And, and I just c- couldn't turn on even a meander. So therefore you shouldn't work with me <laughs> in those areas. But where, where I think I can play a role and where I think I can help bring people together or, 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 or give confidence and belief and direction, I absolutely commit and love to, to see things being created through the power of people. Amazing. And then retirement came in 2008. Did that feel the right time? Do you have any regrets from retirement from F1? Felt the right time, no regrets. The beginning of that year was the first time I really, you know, tested the car and had a doubt. You know, I just, every other year you thought, oh, I can make this better, I can be better, the car, we can develop it. And I think I was mentally just tired. I put so much into my career to to, to get to that level. It, it, some people are more naturally talented and they, they just seem to be able to glide through their careers, but it really took me a lot of effort. And, and it felt right. And of course, it's a gift to be a Grand Prix driver. It's a, it's a very um, privileged place to be. But equally, when I retired and stopped training, my body didn't hurt anymore. Yeah. I didn't lose any more races. I didn't have the mental anguish and turmoil uh, when I let the team down. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of living that comes on the other side of it. And yeah. it, it, we, even when I look at the drivers today, sometimes I see them joking and laughing and I think, God, are these guys really taking it seriously? But that's probably how I looked yeah. outside of the yeah. car. Yeah. Behind the facade, you, you, if you've had, even if you've had success, you're, you're pushing yourself to try and how do, I, how do I bottle that? How do I keep that moment and momentum? Or if you've had a bad day and you've made mistakes, you're beating yourself up behind your facade of your face, um, your public facing position, trying to understand why you did that. How do you make sure you don't do it again? It's, it's, it's a wonderful place to be, but it's also, 
it's an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, well, listen, uh, we could talk about your career for hours and hours, but there's something very pressing at hand, and this will be the pinnacle of your career, quite frankly. I'm going to hand over to my esteemed colleague to introduce the Motormouth Quiz. Yes, DC, this is Motormouths, the hardest quiz in motorsports. Uh, now, we have uh, four clips for you uh, and then a bonus question, which we're going to play for you. Within each qu- uh, clip, there are three points up for grabs. Um, so have a listen. And then there are a couple there are follow-up questions. Uh, and they're all to do with you. So uh, you hopefully you stand a good chance. Top of the leaderboard at the moment is Brendan Hartley with 12 and a half points. There are 13 up for grabs. He's top bottom is Karun Chandhok with three and a half he was rubbish if you you can beat Karun you're doing well um okay so I would have put money on Karun leading the way yeah he's an encyclopedia but he he had a shocker but and Catherine um Bonmure um you know who you know very well through your W series exploits she's in there as well whereabouts is she Harry she is in 10th spot with 10 points not bad so uh she's slap bang in the middle of the leaderboard currently there is uh 18 spots to fill Let's see where you can come, DC. Let's get the first clip going. Here it comes. With every good reason, you can understand his fury because he's now effectively lost the chance of taking the world in, taking the world championship lead. Uh, what is he up to? He's storming down the pit lane, presumably to go. And look at him! Look at him! He's he's saying, "I'm going to the stewards." He's James James. James James. <laughs> Brilliant. So, as you say, so what was going on there? Yeah, uh, I can see the video clip in my mind, even though I can't physically see it. Uh, So Michael had run into the back of me, three wheels in his wagon, we were onto the pits. Uh, Stefano Domenicali, who's now at Lamborghini, and actually my my, um, events business, uh, Velocity, we're doing some work with with Lamborghini, which will be uh, be, being announced at the end of this month. So still have a connection. Stefano, but Stefano was holding Michael back unsuccessfully <laughs> as he came to the garage. And there was a mechanic uh, um, who was a truckie, actually, a guy called Steve Morrow, who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, his nickname was Forklift because he was huge. He could lift things up. He used to do the refueling at McLaren. And Michael chose to try and enter the McLaren garage where Forks was. And he was a man mountain. Nothing was getting through him. So there was no way Michael could get to me. But I do remember him fighting. Uh, and you can bleep this out, but I'll just give you the the, the, the unedited version of what Michael shouted. Please, yes. He shouted, Are you, were you trying to fucking kill me? Uh, <laughs> clearly, I wasn't. <laughs> he was behind me. But I, at that moment in time, I thought, God, he's really grasped the English language. And Very, good. Very good. Very good. I know the video you're referencing, and he, he looks full of rage. He looks really, really yeah. angry. And so well, that is a point, absolutely. And then just to clarify, the year... <laughs> Was it 98? Absolutely spot on. And that was, of course, Spa. So that is three points in the bag already. Solid start. Solid start. Let's move on to clip number two. Here it comes. That is the car. That is the car. Tough one, tough one. A tough one to hear. I, I didn't actually, did he say stop the car or something? I didn't actually really hear. So if you just tell let's, me the yeah, words. Let's, ha- let's have a, let's have a replay of it. That is the car, that is the car. Not good, doesn't turn, doesn't stop. Oh, no traction. 
So if you can't hear it, it's how's the car, how's the car, talking to you on the radio. And you say, um, it doesn't turn, doesn't stop, but I'm loving it. Oh, wow. God, I wasn't very appreciative, was I? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got him here, Harry. We might. So well, you can I, tell. I'm going to assume I was actually being... Well, there's two things, isn't it? I either was having a really bad race and I was trying to make light of it or I was winning and uh, and, and I was trying to be clever uh, and failing. Either way, I'm not going to be able to guess. <laughs> it sounded like Phil Prue was my engineer rather than uh, Pat Fry, who's now gone to Renault. Phil Prue is at uh, Mercedes Engines now. But I, w- I wouldn't be able to tell you what year so- I think, because the clip is, is a hard one to detail from my research, you're talking about how your car is doing. You're racing a Red Bull in 07, and I think it's at the Canadian Grand Prix, uh, where you're behind Kovalainen and uh, just trying to get past, and you're just making light of the fact the car is a bit tricky to, to, a bit tricky to drive, but you're having okay, a good time. Okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have got that. Sorry. <laughs> that was a tough <laughs> no, one. That is fine. That Unfortunately, that is zero points for that round, but all you need is a half a point, you being Karun. Uh, but there's still two more clips to go. Uh, let's have clip number three here it comes obviously this is my uh, nightmare scenario that's all you get that's all you get I'm afraid uh, Austria took out my uh, Mika uh, turn two I think I, I can't remember the year was that 99 as well? 99 yeah 99 yeah. yeah full marks there excellent yeah that was a uh, yeah how, how do you look back on moments like that <laughs> Ah, I went in with full commitment and yeah. he didn't break at the point I thought he was going to. <laughs> Send it. <laughs> Send it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I remember uh, the, to make it worse, I didn't win the race. I think Irvine won the race. I was yeah. And um, Zanardi came out of the pits. No, yeah, Zanardi came out of the pits in front of me and held me up and didn't move for the blue flags. And in that time, I didn't manage to capitalise on the new tyres and Eddie managed to pit, get new tyres, come out, hit a couple of big laps and get out in front of me. So, and I remember talking to Zanardi afterwards and, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the position he then found himself in late in his career. But having come back from America, I remember him saying to me, I had track position. And I was like, yeah, but I was leading the Grand Prix and you weren't, you were holding me up. And he just couldn't see my point of view and it cost me the win. So not only did I take Mika out, I finished second to a Ferrari, <laughs> which just compounded the general yeah. frustration. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bad day. Bad day. Well, if it's any luck, I'm at least remembering that. Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, if it's any luck, you've got three out of three for that one. Yeah. So um, maybe, if I'm lucky, maybe if you're lucky, I'll add a half point on at the end. But let's see how you do yeah, with your final detail, clip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there was some good detail in there, to be fair, Harry. I know, I know you were generous with your points. You'll see how we go. Okay. The other one was really difficult. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the hardest quiz in motorsport. Um, okay, final clip for you. What's going on? Have a listen. You know, how do you forget to put fuel in the car? <laughs> uh, Massa, uh, Ferrari, and it was in the top three, either qualifying conference or the FIA conference, and someone had asked him about, uh, you know, not the fuel not going in the car. And I, and I think it was during the battle with Hamilton for the chat or Michael or something. It basically, I was, I found it highly unlikely that Ferrari had forgotten to put fuel in his car. And to me, it seemed more of a strategic play. How can we Some stop sort of conspiracy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, God. Do you remember where you were saying that though? Because it, it was at the press conference. 
but I don't remember the race. I don't remember the the, the racetrack, but I do remember it was Massa. I was I was a journalist. I think I wasn't even being asked the question. I think it was no, yeah. <laughs> Putting your two pens in. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know what? Up. I'm going to give you three points for that for the detail. Um, yeah. So that is another three points. So doing well. Bonus question for you. How are we looking at the moment, point. Harry? Who, who are we in between on the leaderboard? Uh, so at the moment, you're you're looking good. If you can get this bonus point, you'll draw you'll draw even with Catherine oh. with ten points. So midfield, midfield. Okay, here it comes. How many points did you score in your first season racing for Red Bull in two thousand and five? We, I think scored more in the first race than they'd scored in the entire year. <laughs> I finished fourth. Yeah, uh, yeah well remembered. Uh, and I remember Christian Horner gave me a hug like I've never been hugged by any man before. <laughs> and I was fourth. But then, of course, the significance was that that was a big result for the team. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't even remember the point scoring because they went through. You know, of course, it was different the, then. It was 10 and then it went to 25. So I wouldn't be able to tell you the, the points. I, in any of my years, I wouldn't be able to, able to tell you the points because that, that, what was important was the position. Right? You know, it's a bit like yeah. what, what average speed did you do to win the Grand Prix? No idea. I won the Grand Prix. <laughs> out of fairness. Well, we're, we're, okay. Out of fairness. Got, the answer was. Hang on, hang on. Out of fairness. Uh, we'll I give you. We'll give you between. We'll give you a, de- I'll give you a range. We'll okay. give you between 20 to 30. Uh, 24 points. Wow. Spot on. I never remember. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, you know what? I'll give you the point. There we go. That that has that has drawn you level with Catherine Bommier and Adam Christodoulou and slots you into 10th place, just below Sebastian Boemi. Huh. Okay. I don't want to appear competitive. Could clearly uh, yeah, that would not yeah. be a team to run through my career, yeah. but I am 49 years old, <laughs> and I did stop in Formula One more than a decade ago. So, in terms of memory, asking Brendan Hartley something about his career when he was about 15 yeah. years old mm. and hasn't lost any brain cells to accelerate. <laughs> You make you know, a valid you know, point. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a bit like a bus pass. You know, there's got to be something. A handicap, perhaps. A decade after your career, you've got to be given something your, else. Your pleads are in vain. Well, I'm afraid it's not really an excuse because we also had Mark Blundell and he came fourth with 12 points. Ah. So um, <laughs> no excuses, I'm afraid, DC, but a solid round. Yeah. Solid round. Yeah, it was uh, a good round. Proud of. It's the hardest motorsport, motorsport quiz around. It, so, is, uh, it is indeed. Uh, DC, right, uh, a few more, um, in no particular order, random questions for you. Best pound-for-pound pound racer you've ever shared a track with? Yes, that's Michael. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And who would you say is the most underrated racing driver you've ever, ever come across? That's more difficult because that would that would have taken me that would have taken time and energy to have been studying their career while I was trying to develop mine. <laughs> you know, the Michael thing is easier because that he was one of the hardest guys to race. Mm. Uh, there's there's well, hundreds of guys. In sort of your role as uh, a broadcaster, having broadcasted on Formula One for the last few years, what what out of that current crop of drivers is there anybody that you think is particularly under, underrated or has been underrated? 
I think that the sport has a way of making decisions that, that don't always relate to whether that guy's good behind mm. the wheel. Uh, I find it of the, of the most recent people to have dropped out of Formula One, who I think it could and, and is an asset. I think Nico Hulkenberg yeah, oh, can yeah. deliver. And it seems almost as if it hinged on, you know, the mistake in Hockenheim where, you know, he was, I think he was in a podium position and slipped off. Yeah. Bearing in mind a lot of other drivers who've won Grand Prix slipped off the track as well. So it, it, it's just weird, isn't it? How, mm. But maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was a bigger picture thing with uh, His nationality. And, <laughs> nationality and, but, I, you know, I don't want to be, I don't, not one person springs yeah. to mind. There's guys that have been fantastic in lower formula that never even got to exactly. race. So, we, if we come from the understanding that life isn't fair, mm. none of us are born, and some of us are born into more fortunate situations than others, then motor racing and professional sport is a gift. And if you're gifted enough to be able to play in that arena, you have to accept that you won't always mm. get what you think for and yeah. not even always what you work for. But yeah. somehow the sport has a way of... The, I'm pretty confident that the exceptional guys have found their way to the top. Mm. Yeah, and it's, by that, I mean, championships. It's, yeah. it's funny. There are and there are some drivers who were exceptional at the junior categories in karting who just didn't cut it in F one. You know, you look at people like Jano Trulli, who was a brilliant junior, um, just couldn't quite cut it when it when it came to it in, in F one. Um, well, you know, I just quickly, I learned the hard way about you know supporting a driver who was who's perhaps going on to big things and sadly didn't quite make the crop cut for, after a few years in Formula One. Perhaps my favourite Scottish driver, Paul DeResta. Yeah. I was heartbroken when he. Uh, when he left Formula One, truly my favourite driver. I really thought he had a lot to give there, and I was absolutely outraged when ha- he left Harry's, Formula One. And that's something I'm not over to this day. I'm ha- not over it. Harry's <laughs> love of Paul DeResta is extraordinary, and it's quite emotional. Um, we're going to have to make that connection happen. I think I'm one of these days. Fan. Yeah, yeah, fan but boy. They say never meet your heroes, so maybe I should stay away. Yeah, um, true. <laughs> who's your uh, Who's your best friend in motorsport? Who's your best friend in the paddock? Uh, I, I spend a lot of, you know, Martin Brundle I spend a lot of time with. Um, you know, we were obviously competitors and then he was my manager and uh, we, we've developed, you know, a great, great friendship. Um, Christian, you know, someone that I've developed a, a close, close friendship, Adrian, of course, over the years. Um, yeah, I guess, that, you know, the, those are the guys that come to, come to mind. Um you know, there's a lot of people that I would say I've got friendships with, but, uh, you know, when it comes down to best friends, it's, you know, it's always a bit more tricky, isn't it? You know, these are people that you've got to have actually spent holiday time or, or whatever, you know, mm. traveling time to really get to know people. Have you got any um, hidden talents? Nothing hidden. What you see is what you get. It's- so the <laughs> Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so you're not a dab hand in the kitchen, perhaps? What can you cook? What are you a good good as a chef? No, my wife is fantastic at cooking, and I think I would get a gold star for cleaning. So yeah. we have a routine where she prepares and I tidy. 
I'm comfortable in that role. I think I'm good at it. Uh, we've, we've had some questions sent in to us by um, some of our followers on social media. Um, we're, we're running a, a little low on time, so we'll probably just pick a couple, probably just two, Harry, I think. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, I'll take the first one. Let's go with uh, Kai Bacini. He asks, we have seen a big community engagement with motorsport as a whole through esports and virtual racing. Is there any plans of getting the fans to connect with the W series in a similar way? Yes. <laughs> Good. Any further comment? No. <laughs> yeah, for further comment, you need to reach out to Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. And um, and Alex Goldschmidt asks, um, now that Audi has decided to leave the DTM at the end of this season, what future route can you see for the series? As there have been lots of different ideas suggested. Well, I did actually reach out to Gerhard today and I can report exclusively to you that he told me that he can't tell me anything right now. Oh, I was so excited there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> so, um, I, you know, in the, in the next couple of weeks, I think we'll have a clearer picture to what they have been working on and what their, their, the future will be for that championship. We have a final three that we ask all our guests. Um, Harry, why don't you kick things off? Yeah, so we asked these to everybody. Number one, what's got you excited at the moment? Uh, well, I, I reached a peak of excitement recently having just watched the final episode of Suits, which I think came out in 2012. <laughs> Never seen it. It's only during lockdown that my wife and I have actually managed to get into yeah. serious watching. And we're now on Revenge. Oh, um, Revenge. Which, uh, I love which Revenge. Is, yeah, it's, which has been fun. You know, but it's uncomfortable watching how, mm. how devious can be you know, when you're not a devious person yes. <laughs> it's also very uh, American sure. as well it's a very yeah. American kind of series it's very dramatic yeah absolutely but it's, for me it's kind of a modern version of Dallas you know you guys yes. know, I remember yeah yeah. yeah, I remember as a kid watching that but anyway uh, and beyond that life gets me excited I, I you know step out of bed the first couple of steps in the morning are a bit stiff as I'm 49 but yeah, another day, another opportunity. And that, that's where my where, where I channel my excitement. Lovely. And just on the subject to TV series, uh, my wife and I, uh, while in lockdown, are watching, uh, I think it's called Normal People. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one. It's, it's on BBC Catch Up. It's, it's good. It's, it's saucy. It's racy. It's pretty out there, but highly recommend it. Um, so that's one to watch. Because, you know, a lot of people have got you sort of, you know, no televisions in the bedroom. But I always have this, and we're not, we're certainly not big television watchers, but I definitely have a TV in the, the bedroom because I think there's certain TV series that are bedroom watching. <laughs> yep. And there's certain TV series that you take on the sofa. Yep. So, you know, Revenge would be a sofa series yeah. yeah and it sounds like what you're saying is ordinary people is a bedroom series i would say it's more of a bedroom series i mean sofa yeah. bedroom kitchen whatever you know you can... well, well there, you, there you are you're obviously you know in a very healthy relationship so well done for expanding <laughs> well i'm i'm, I'm on my uh, let's put, it, put it this way uh, we're, we're we're about to have baby number three Wow. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> well done. Um, moving okay, on. Moving on. Moving away from my bedroom. Um, if not uh, doing what you're doing, if not being a racing driver, it's a difficult question for you, this one, because you've, you've done so much. You've been a racing driver. Um, you've been a businessman. You're in broadcasting. I, what would you be doing? If you'd never got gone down this road, um, would you have just gone into the family business and that would have been you? 
I believe so. I, I, that's what I thought I was destined to do. And, you know, when I left school and, and, and started to to try and, you know, understand exactly what this, this new world of computing was uh, back in 89 and and to, to get some schooling in that, it was with a thought towards working in the family transport business. But thankfully, the, the vision and efforts of my, my parents created a, a platform and opportunity in car racing and, and then... The, you know, the transport company my brother runs today is, you know, I know a lot of people are going through difficulties right now, but Hayton Colfart, which has been going since 1916, is in a boom period right now because of the contracts we have, which are supplying supermarkets and beer uh, deliveries and things like that. It's the thing that's really being consumed at the moment. Mm-hmm. So the family business through the, this difficult time, my own personal business is, is uh is on a, a period of hibernation in some areas, but the family business in a, is in a boom period. So, you know, that's the ebb and flow of life. Right, Harry, over to you for the last question of the, the day. last question, DC. Uh, what are you scared of? Not a big fan of snakes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, I don't that's like a fair snakes. Shout. We've had a lot of animals. We've had snakes, spiders, killer whales, sharks. Yeah, Sebastian Buemi is definitely afraid of sharks, which was an interesting one. Um, but snakes... Well, I have sandwich sharks, but probably they'd fed them already, so I would be perfectly safe. And like a dumbass, I just believed them, and anyway, I survived. Yeah, anything poisonous, I just don't want anything to be a bite. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, anything non-poisonous, like spiders and stuff like that. I, 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 yeah, I can pick up a spider or a creepy crawly and, and, and place it in nature, but I don't want to kill something just because it's in your, your home. I'd rather mm. put it somewhere it can go and live its life because I don't think it's wanting to be. You know, it's not wanting to protect you. But, um, yeah, I think it's that obvious thing. You know, of course, I'm not that fond of the idea of death, but, you know, given that I don't have, you know, I don't have a magic potion that's going to save me from that eventually. Yeah. just got to accept that life is what it is. And as Colin McRae <laughs> used to say, he used to say to to me and to, to, to others. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Absolutely. So couldn't agree more. Yeah, couldn't agree more with Colin. Well, on that note, I think it's the perfect point to sign off. Um, David Coulthard, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real honour to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth podcast. We here at Motormouth are a small, independent team. Since starting this podcast just over a year ago, we're reaching over 15,000 of you across 30 countries around the world. Uh, We want to bring the biggest names in motorsport to you. Find out about their lives and careers and have a chat about whatever is going on in the motorsport world. We are determined to carry on producing these episodes. However, they do come at a cost. From securing guests to equipment and editing software and expanding the podcast and app, that's why we've set up a Patreon page where you can help us to carry on doing what we do. 
There are three levels at which you can contribute, starting from £5 a month to £10 or £20. Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access. Depending on which one you choose, you can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout-outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world.